Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Dave Bryant Copeland, who is a senior software engineer, a speaker, and author of Sustainable Web Development with Ruby on Rails. Dave joins us today from Washington, D.C. Dave Bryant Copeland, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? I think that it's software that people understand what it does and how it works and that they have confidence to change it, which usually means tests. I think that's the very, very short version of what I think maintainable software has, at least in my experience. I hear everybody talks about testing and not all projects are equal in terms of when you come into the project and stuff like that. What sort of challenges have you encountered coming into a project that might have existed where maybe testing hadn't been emphasized enough or maybe even the team didn't really wrap their head around it or maybe tried to start doing it? At least there was like some initial attempts to do it, but it kind of got abandoned. Like what sorts of things have you kind of encountered yourself and to make that more maintainable? When you have a bunch of unit tests, but there's no integration test or acceptance test or anything like that, those higher level tests like are testing like what the user would do. And if you don't have a way to do what the user would do and check that it works, that's obviously a problem. But those tests are the worst and they're hard to write. And they're hard to maintain. So it makes logical sense to me that you might roll in and see the easily maintainable unit test, but none of the integration tests. But those are the things that you need to know, like, does this thing actually or like not does it work, but like, what does it supposed to do and how can I? be confident that if I change something, it like only changes what I want. And my defense mechanism over the years for that particular problem is to try to start at a company early so that I can make sure that that doesn't happen. But I've certainly experienced like a lack of testing and, you know, you have to kind of just try to find time to add tests as you go. I don't know. It, it can be hard depending on the situation and the pressure that you're under. I can appreciate that. You mentioned thinking about integration tests they are sometimes often maybe the most brittle at times, especially if an application's going through a lot of changes or they're going through a redesign of something and then like all of a sudden everything, and you're like, well, is the functionality still work and how much was it coupled to the HTML layer or something or we're introducing some new JavaScript stuff into the mix and like then people not knowing how to quite test for that or it's seemingly taking a lot longer to do that. So what have you found to kind of work well for kind of overcoming that or at least helping people kind of wrap their head around that where they may not have had that experience? Because we talk a lot about, you know, they're saying testing and, you know, Unit testing, I think people can wrap their head around that because it's a lot more granular, I suppose. But when you get into this like kind of a higher level where like the front end experience is changing quite often, like how do you kind of think about that? I mean, I think it starts from like, what is the reason to do it in the first place, right? So it's not just some like, I'm a craftsman and I write tech. Like, that's not it at all. It's like, how do you know it works? And like, if you, the developer, don't have a way to know that it works, like that seems somewhat negligent. And so there's lots of ways to figure out it works. Like one way is like, you just check it, right? You can just run it and just click around. Like that is a way to see if it works, certainly. Another way is to have a huge QA team who they do all the clicking. And so you kind of start from there and you can sort of get at like, look, your job is to make working software. And so you need a 
way to know that it's working. What is that way that we're going to do and how are we going to approach that? And when you kind of come at it from that way, it does give you some ability to speak about it outside of your world, right? So like a designer may say, hey, here's this thing I want to do. And I think it's legitimate to say, look, we need to like be able to check that when we build that, it's working. And that could be really, really hard. And perhaps we can do something simpler that's easier for us to test, like try to think of it as a whole system where it's like, hey, I got to make sure that this is working. And so the more complicated you want this thing to be, the longer it's going to take me to make sure that I know that it's working or the harder it's going to be to make changes and try to come at it from that way and not from some sort of like moralistic kind of thing where it's like, well, this is just how you do good work. It's like, I mean, yeah, kind of, but it's more like I've got my end of the job to do and I need to make it as easy as possible. And then, I mean, that's sort of high level, like philosophically, I think when you're writing the test, there's a whole bunch of techniques that people don't necessarily know about, which is, you know, you write the HTML and the the JavaScript in a way so that you can test it and put stuff in the markup in a certain way so that you can actually write tests in a way that works. And that's not necessarily easy and people don't do that by default. And, you know, that's a whole other kind of more specific technique that you have to know about. You bring up a good point there around there's like good things you build up that skill set over a period of time. But like, do you remember when you first started working on integration tests, what it was like? The first time I was doing it and experienced the flakiness, there maybe was like a little JavaScript in the app, but there wasn't much, but it was basically like I kept adding sleep into the test until it worked. And then sometimes that would stop. So I'd up the sleep because I had no concept of like, or my concept of how it was actually running the test was wrong. I thought like I'm downloading a bunch of HTML into a string and then I'm looking at that string. And then when the test fails, the test outputs the string it was looking at. And I'd look at that string and I'm like, that's not what the Like I just, that was wrong. That's not how it actually works. And so eventually I got an understanding of like, okay, this browser that's running is like, this is this dynamic thing. It's never done. It's never stopped. It's never, the request is never completed. And now we look like that just doesn't exist at all. And only then did I realize like, okay, this is the approach you need to take. Like you have a snapshot in time to look at this thing and you have to arrange the world so that when you take the snapshot, it's as predictable as you can make it. And I wish someone had told me that, but like nobody, I just sort of came to it by like, like learning and experimentation, I really wish someone had sort of said, this is conceptually how this works. Because it's totally different than a unit test, right? A unit test is like, you arrange everything and it's static and nothing changes and you poke at it and it comes back. And that's not how like a browser-based integration test works. As you're prepping for this conversation, I know that you have some thoughts around just that, that relationship to how difficult is it going to be to write the code to make this thing work, but also then to be confident that it's going to continue working over the, the course of its that this particular new feature that someone is proposing building. And you can add all these like sophisticated interactions, like specifically thinking about like web applications right now. But what sorts of ways have you started to think about how you approach that relationship between like wherever the product side of like the ideas are coming from, whether that's from a design team or within your own team, like how that process goes, how do you advocate for, because I think in, in some ways, like software developers can get excited about building something that looks complicated be like, look what we did. We made this work. But then it becomes like, oh, how are we going to test this? Or how are we going to feel confident about this is going to not be brittle? Exactly. So the first part is like having the experience to know that like what you just said, like it's going to be hard to test. And therefore my job of maintaining this is going to be harder, the more like fancy 
it is. And then the second part, which is a lot harder skill to develop, is being able to like ask the designer or the product person, like, why does it have to be this fancy? And it's hard to ask that in a way that doesn't come across as like, I'm lazy and I don't feel like building that. Or I'm an old curmudgeon and I don't like fancy flippy things. Like, it's really hard to ask, does it need to do that? And you have to be able to explain like, why am I asking? Like, and I'm asking because it's going to take longer to build and harder to maintain. Like all those things, you kind of have to let them in on it and try to figure out like, is there a reason why the pages have to flip and animate in and out? Or was that just something you thought was cool and Figma made it really easy to do? And how much you, the designer or product person, like willing to like let it go? Because they need to design something they can be proud of too. So there's a lot of give and take. And that conversation is really hard to have because most people are used to like, I show up and the designer handed me a Photoshop file or a Figma file and I build that. There's no opportunity to question that that should have been thought out but it's not it's not as thought out as maybe it seems and having that conversation can help but that is very hard you have to feel empowered to do that you have to have a good relationship with with the people you're asking you have to ask in the right way yeah that can that can be hard but if you can do that that can make it simpler because then you can start to figure out the fancy stuff that's going to make this hard to maintain why is it there and what value does it bring and then when everyone understands the value of something it's a lot easier to sort of stomach like dealing with it but if you get this feeling of like, oh, well, the designer just wanted something cool for their resume. That doesn't feel good to build, if that's what you think, right? So it's a good point there. And I, I'm reflecting back on the number of times there have been conversations where designers and developers, developers want to be part of those early conversations to hopefully protect, to kind of at least speak to like what the capabilities of the application already are or how that new request might, well, that might actually take four times the amount of time it's going to take to build this as maybe something simpler. So there's a cost associated even up front for building it, letting alone maintaining it. And so I think oftentimes it's usually we focus a lot on what's the estimate to build, but what's the estimate to maintain this? Right. The carrying costs. I mean, it's hard enough to say that requires some level of experience with like what is out there, but then like trying to quantify the carrying costs. And this is where it's a lot of the jobs I've had, there has been no product person. So it's just been sort of all the different people sort of working together. And the, the downside is that of that group, the developer has to bear the carrying costs. The designer doesn't have to bear the carrying costs. If there's like a formal product person, product owner, there is a way to make them bear that cost too, because they would bear it through like slower features to be shipped or whatever their kind of metric is. But yeah, it's hard to get everybody's incentives aligned to just be like, hey, let's all work together and make this maintainable system, even though you, the designer don't have to necessarily bear the cost of like some of the decisions that you're making. It's got me thinking also around there's that enticement about the excitement of being like, oh, I can build something complicated because it's kind of like you're focusing that really narrow. Like, what, what are you working on the next month or two? You're not thinking like a couple of years down the road necessarily all the time as a software developer. You hear about these new technologies that are popping up. We've seen a lot of front end JavaScripts pop up over our careers, I'm, I'm sure, and they come and go. And so I have this like weird, maybe healthy slash unhealthy attitude about a lot of that. And so I'm just very skeptical. I'm like, oh, do we need another framework, another JavaScript. Like, why do we keep doing this? But that's fine. But it makes me wonder, there is an argument I think some people will make to be like, well, if I don't have an opportunity to use some of these newer technologies, I'm worried that I will not be hireable, you know? And so where's that, that balance between what I might label as resume-driven development and what the product and the software team that hired me to do for the short term, for the now, how do you weigh that up? 
Yeah, because it's like when you're on the first part of your career and you don't have a lot of experience, like what is it that you can say you can do to entice somebody? And like kind of saying, I know React or Elixir or whatever, like those are concrete things you can say you did and show that you did them. And it makes it easy for someone to match. Well, okay, there's this junior developer who knows React and we have React. So that's one less thing I got to deal with if I hire them. So that all makes sense. But then kind of into the mid-level and stuff, like really the way you would want to sell yourself is like, I can talk to a human being and understand what they want to do and like make software work. And then as you kind of progress it, there's more of that. I know how to figure out what to do is, is what you're bringing. And that's way fuzzier to explain. So I can totally see the appeal and the reality, right? If I have a couple of years of experience, and I go get a job, I'm going to need to have those buzzwords, as they say, on there. And then, right, it's so meta because if I'm the manager of these people or I'm the tech lead of this group, I need to be real that they're not going to be on my team for more than a couple of years on average, right? Everybody switches jobs all the time. And so I would be doing right by them by making sure that they're prepared for their next job. I wouldn't want to do the opposite of that, but then I have to make sure that like the thing gets delivered. It's definitely a balancing act. I mean, even choosing technology, I was at a Java shop and we were doing this new project. I was like, oh, we got to use Ruby on Rails. And like, they just didn't want to. And they were like, look, we have all this Java knowledge built up. We know how to hire Java developers. That is just what we're going to do. That makes sense. Even if like, I think the project would have been better served, the team would not have been. I don't know. This kind of, I'm kind of all over the place with wishy-washy answers, but I think you want to get developers out of that mindset of like, I need to have hard skills that I can demonstrate and get them past that. But early on, like it's hard to avoid. It's a complicated thing, and both of those realities can kind of coexist, I think. There's like a balance for a lot of organizations. Some companies, from like a retention perspective, I have I know, I got, you know, I've spoken with a number of clients over the years where, yeah, we have this stuff, and we weren't really sure, but at the same time, we didn't want to lose the developers by not allowing them to experiment a little bit, but they're no longer here taking care of the thing that they introduced. And so like, that's why we're calling Plan Oregon to come in and help out. And it's like this interesting thing, like, well, we can talk about like what could have, should have, like it got you to here at least in whatever the decisions made. But now there's a new decision that needs to be made. Do we keep going down this path or we do refactor something? And that's just what happens in software projects too. So it's not the end of the world necessarily, but it does slow things down sometimes as you keep introducing new technology. And I'm sure there's plenty of stories of people that will tell the complete opposite experience. Like that actually unlocked things for those organizations. Well, it also depends on like the temperament of who you hire. Like when I was at Stitch Fix, the CTO had a real focus on hire developers motivated by delivering product, delivering working features, delivering business value. And there were definitely times where we'd interview someone who was clearly a very capable developer, but they were motivated by using technology and not as motivated by delivering the business value. And so we would not hire them, which was, it's hard to like have someone who were, were like, their incentives aren't aligned, even though they're not a bad engineer or whatever. Like they just, they would not be happy here because they're going to use Ruby on Rails because that's what we've chosen. And if they want to use some crazy new database, like they just, that's just not what we're going to do. And that lasted for a while. And we avoided a lot of chasing the hot new thing for a, a while, but it was a constant thing with hiring, you have to make sure that you screen for that when you're hiring. And then you get pressure to hire and it's hard to maintain every single requirement you have for the job, especially something like that. But it did help for a while. We'll be back with our interview with Dave in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and writing reviews Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. I'm just going to help speed up for you, so I'm going to talk really fast. Thanks. So you didn't actually hit the 2x button. I'm just talking really fast. Also, do you know someone in the industry that's become the Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at Maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Dave Brian Copeland.
It's a good point for thinking about just even the recruitment process. And it's something that with my company, because we are primarily working on projects that have been around for a while, almost exclusively Ruby on Rails related projects. So when we're hiring for our own team, that is very much a filter thing that we have to talk about is like, what is it about the type of work that we do that you're going to be excited about? Because it's if it's just that we work with Ruby on Rails, know that that's a part of the job. The other part of it is like, we're working on client projects, we're being consultants, we're not always able to quickly upgrade everything to the newest version of things. You need to be able to exist across lots of different spectrums of versions of the applications and all these different technical decisions that have been made by previous developers, different JavaScript frameworks. You're getting exposed to a lot, but we can't just change it overnight because we make them all uniform. Every client's not going to be the same sort of engagement. And so, and if they're talking about being excited about like, oh, new technologies, I'm like, we don't do that. And that's not like a bad thing. It's just like, that's not what our organization's kind of focused on. So I want to take a moment to make sure we can plug your book, Sustainable Web Development with Ruby on Rails. Could you tell us a little bit about the types of topics you cover and what may not be typically found in, say, some typical learned programming and Ruby on Rails type of book? Yeah, so I realized like after several years of doing Rails on a big team at at Stitchfix and another job, I should try to like write down what worked and what didn't work and and why and try to create a context for some of this stuff. Day one at Stitchfix, there was another developer there. I came from Living Social, the other one came from some other company, and both of them had a massively huge, messy Rails project that was a disaster zone. And we were just trading stories. And we were like, we're never putting business logic in the active records again. Never. Those things are for accessing the database only, all the special logic of Whatever it is we do, that's just going to go somewhere else. We both were like on the same page. So that's basically what we did. And that was surprisingly the easiest thing to get developers to do. Like once they came on, they saw where it was. They're like, okay, that's fine. Now the book that I wrote, it does talk about that. It's not the focus of the book, but it is like a part of it. But what I tried to do is like kind of go through each part of Rails and be like, here's the things that like can suck. And here's how to just avoid it entirely. Or here's how to just manage it. Or in some cases, it's like there's not a great alternative. So you just need to be aware of that and try to go through like each part of it and say, you know, what works? Like the other thing that we did differently that Rails doesn't really do is like have a, I don't know what you want to call it, like a more strict database design. Like Rails by default is like, everything is nullable, foreign key constraints. No, you don't have those. Like whatever you want is fine. And this is, in my experience, that does not work at all because you get one person using the database who's not you and then your database is corrupted. And then you writing nil checks everywhere. Like it just balloons in this disaster. Whereas if you just took a little time with the database design to make constraints about things, check constraints for values that shouldn't be, all those things are very easy to set up ahead of time and they save lots of headache later. But a lot of developers don't know how to do that. Much of the rest of the book, it's not kind of all over the place. There's some about what we were talking about, JavaScript. Try to minimize it because it makes testing really hard. Try to automate things about everything that you do. Don't write documentation, write automation if you can. It's sort of like a wide take on it and not a tutorial, I guess. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes for people. I think you mentioned like database constraints and things like that. And, you know, we're trying not to focus too much on Ruby on Rails on the podcast, but it is our world. And so, you know, it's interesting when I started using Ruby on Rails, I had come from my previous job was working at a company that did PostgreSQL consulting. And so it was a lot of different programming language, but their specialty was Postgres database. It's such in hindsight, it's like that could just be a business, just being focused on the database itself. But it was so much energy put up front into schema design, constraints, 
creating uh, custom functions in your database, things like that, to perform some business logic and give you so you can interact with everything through you know an SQL query. And then Ruby on Rails came along, and I was very skeptical of like Active Record protecting the database in a lot of ways, and it took me a while to get over that. But then as software projects grow and evolve, and then other people want to start tapping into the database from different tools, like what if we can just avoid Rails or the application just talk directly to the database and build some analytics tools, or can we speed up an import process directly into the database? And you're like, but if everything doesn't go through Rails, it's going to cause a mess. And so you've kind of come to this other perspective, like you need to lean on that. Do you do that for most projects nowadays? There is a question of like, what is business logic technically? I have not had a good experience putting like functions and lots of complicated logic in the database because the tools are just not great. And it's not a great environment to be productive. It's just pretty hard to write those things. I think the second thing is like, a mistake you can make is like, oh, this requirement is so stable. I'm going to put it in the database. And then a month later, it's like, nah, never mind. And then extracting that constraint from the database could be really difficult. So you have to have a little bit of intuition about what aspects of the domain that I'm modeling are stable and I should put them in the database to protect myself versus not. But we had a project at Stitch Fix where the developer had not put foreign key constraints on the relationship between tables because that's not the default. And like, we didn't review it, we just sort of missed it. And so when we went back to add them, every single one of those tables had problems. Like there, there were orphaned records in them. and there was no real bugs in the code or anything like that. And so that told me that there's some base constraints you always have to use, always have foreign key constraints. I default to not null unless I know something's going to be null and that I make sure to write what does null mean because things like that. I've even started thinking like maybe like a name field. Postgres has a type called CI text, which is like case insensitive text. So if you put Dave in all caps in there, that's considered the same value as Dave in lowercase, which for certain values like names makes sense because those two things I just did, those are both my name. The capital letters aren't Part of my name is just like, those should be the same. So trying to think that stuff through, I definitely do do a lot. And I find the exercise of thinking through what your data should have and the constraints on that data is a good exercise to understand what am I building and how is it supposed to work and why does it work the way it does? And it just seems like part of the you know domain modeling or understanding what you're building. Another topic that I wanted to dig in with you, because you know you mentioned earlier the coming into scenarios, and I know that you had preparing for this conversation, you had mentioned that you had worked on a fun Angular project at one point, and by the time it was ready to launch, Angular 2 was about to drop or had already dropped. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? It was a little after. So we had, at Stitch Fix, we had software running in the warehouses. And the warehouses initially had very terrible internet, very spotty internet. And so one aspect of the software was people had these carts and they would go around the warehouse to pick the clothes that were going to go in the shipment. And they had a little laptop there and the laptop would basically tell them like what to pick. So depending on where they were in the warehouse, the internet was not working very well. And so what we did is we rebuilt that in Angular. And so while the person was on the cart, everything was happening in the browser. No real network access was needed. And so when they were done, they would be back somewhere in the warehouse where internet was reliable and they would click, I got this. And it would send everything to the server. And it worked great. Like the problems that it was there to solve, great. It was cool. And we also at Stitcher were very diligent about be on the latest of everything. Do not fall behind. We do not want to stop the world because of a security issue, like always update. So every month we would try to update everything. And Angular 2 came out and it was like completely incompatible with Angular 1. No migration path at all. Conceptually, it was like a completely different framework. And so it was like this thing, Angular, that you built, we're not going to add features to it. And it was unclear what was going to be done with it. It wasn't going to be deleted off of you know NPM, but it certainly wasn't going to get any kind of updates. And Angular 2 is the thing going forward and was like, okay, do we just rewrite this? And if we do now, I'm not going to rewrite it in Angular. They've just burned me. Like I'm never trusting them again, but we decided not to rewrite it. Unfortunately, so during the time between we made that and Angular 2 came out, we replicated this pattern 
pattern of making little tiny apps in Angular. So we had like three or four different apps in Angular. And I mean, those persisted for a long time. And they were the bane of every developer's existence to have to go in and deal with those because part of it was like, what is this? Like Some of the developers were like, what even is this? I never heard of it. And others were like kind of what you were talking about. Like, hey, I don't want to work on the latest technology, but this old and busted Angular one, I don't want to deal with that either. I don't want to learn this kind of useless skill. I don't know how to avoid that. That was just kind of a surprise and really annoying. But it just made me never trust Angular again. I don't know if you were around when RSpec, some version of RSpec came and had all these breaking changes. But they gave a, a tool called Transpec, and you ran Transpec, and it just fixed everything. That was it. It worked perfectly. It was amazing. I was like, okay, great. I will trust you RSpec people forever now because you care about get, keeping me on latest. You care about me investing in a version and staying with what you're doing. And I, my view was the Angular team, did that was not a consideration. Wow, that that happened. Yeah, I've heard a number of similar stories like that. And it's not that those projects can't still be worked on. I've seen it's just that it's actually something I've wrestled a little bit with some people that have been a part of my company over the years is like, we might inherit a project and it's got some backbone involved. And like, people are like, what the heck is this thing? I've never even heard of it. And like, nobody uses that or it doesn't, I don't think it's still being up. And I'm like, I don't even think any of us even know if there's new versions of it. I haven't looked in years, but the app has a backend thing and there's a couple interfaces that use it. We've been able to make it work. Never felt like it was a valuable enough exercise to like, let's rewrite all of this and something else because you can still change the JavaScript. You can figure it out, but it's not like, maybe it's not ideal, but like you have to sometimes live with that too. And not everything can just be budgeted to be removed, especially if it's not going to add a lot of business value. Now, do you have experiences where you come into a project and there's something that's sophisticated, but it's all homegrown? And like, what's the difference between like the homegrown beast versus the ancient, unupdated open source thing? I'm kind of curious. I've not had that experience. I don't feel like I've seen anything like that since probably pre-jQuery era. You know, it's, I don't feel like I've seen a lot of homegrown. I've seen a lot of interesting things happen within the Ruby on Rails applications themselves. Like, you know, a lot of interesting things that might exist in lib, the lib directory. And there's like, what is going on here are things that keep or a lot of things that are preventing the application from getting upgraded because there's a lot of weird things. You don't even know if they're still being used or not, but someone was clever enough to override a bunch of things in some Rails internals. So that can happen because it is tried to work around the framework rather than work with the framework. But when it comes to like anything in JavaScript, it's, it's been a while, I think back like, I feel like there were some things we had seen back in the prototype era, which was write your own JavaScript. That was just kind of what we did. At Stitch Fix, we talk about gem debt, and there could be like NPM module debt where you, you use a module for everything in the world because it seems logical because it's out there, it's open source, it should be tested, someone's maintaining it. But then at the same time, like if you built your own version, you control it, it can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about like a lot, but then you're in theory rebuilding something that exists. And I don't know like or how to think about that problem because like some of those NPM modules, they're really, really basic. And I'm like, why would I not just copy and paste that code into my thing and not have the module? And there's a few rails. There's one for like, it's just called pagination module. And it's like everything in the world you would ever do with pagination. But if you don't need all those features, it seems like it'd be easier to just not use it, have control over the tiny bit of pagination that you need. But I see the logic in not doing that. I don't know. So I, that's why I was sort of curious. Like, you probably see the results of some of those decisions. I've only seen the results of my decisions. You've probably seen others. So I'm always curious, like, what does that look like a few years later? I feel like it's always been easier to wrap our head around things when people have done things within Ruby. And we understood why. And there was some tests to kind of explain what they were doing there. Most of the time, I'm trying to think of some specific examples off the top of my head, but there's definitely been scenarios where there are things in lib that probably might have been a gem that did something similar so I can understand why they did it. But typically it's more of the, we've brought too many dependencies in and you find out that like they're barely using something. You're like, oh, can we just rip this out? Or 
And then I even think back to like I've released gems that just updated the copyright date in the footer. I'm like, no one needed that, but people used it. And I'm like, oh, that's it's just printing out the date. Um, it's not that valuable. But having said that, I think it was more of an experiment for me to try to find a way to reuse stuff on our projects and to be like, look, I can make a gem. But it doesn't mean everybody should use it. So another thing I wanted to pivot around was getting advice from, I'm going to air quote, experienced practitioners, from even people like us. So how do you think about that? Like, why is this an interesting thing to you? When I was at Living Social, there, everybody that, you know, wrote a Ruby book or gave Ruby talks at conferences, like they all worked there. And I was very excited. And some of them were awesome. And some of them were not. And it was really eye-opening. And I realized that like, when you go see like a conference talk, why are they saying what they're saying? Are they saying, I had this experience, I'm sharing this experience with you. Cool. That's good. That's useful. And knowing some context, right? So like you and I are good examples. Like you said, you're dropping into Rails projects to fix them or to you know enhance a team or something like that. And that's totally different from my experience, which is being an early developer at a company, like building the product and sort of being there on the team. And so the advice that you'd give people on your team versus people on my team would be different and not, not wrong. But it would be different in that context of like, where is this advice coming from? And you, the speaker, you, the expert, like, what is your expertise and what isn't your expertise? So like at the beginning of the Sustainable Rails book, we were just talking about like the free chapter, it basically says like, I am not a consultant. I haven't been a consultant in a long time. The advice in this book might not be useful for you if you are working for a Rails consultancy. But if you're doing what I did and, and I explain more detail, like, you know, what my role was, then that's the context in which you should sort of listen to this advice. I think that's really important. And having someone who's like, oh, I just thought this would be a cool idea. I like cool ideas, but you don't want to go do that if it's not based on some experience. So in understanding like where someone's coming from, why are they saying what they're saying? What has their experience been? Have they actually done the thing that they're telling you about? Right, DHH going on about microservices, he's never worked in a microservices architecture. That doesn't mean that he's necessarily wrong or that he can't have a well-reasoned opinion about it. But if someone else has worked in a microservices architecture, you may want to weight what they say a little higher than him because they've been through it and their experience, they have real experience, not just hypothetical imagined experience. And it's a tough thing to to weigh up within the needs of your project, what your context is, and be like, take these different things from different, I wouldn't say extremes, but from different angles of where people are coming from and sharing how they've done things. And it's been interesting. I think one of the takeaways that I've had over the years is, I think, back to the similar types of skepticism, but it's more of uh, what those people are talking about, what Netflix can do at their organization and think about how they think about deployment and their infrastructure and the ways that they think about DevOps related things. And that is very different than the small new startup thing that you're hoping might make money one day. And so the decisions that they're making there this interesting fine line but like are you are we over designing this early on when we don't even know if it's going to find a paying customer to use this thing or whatever you know the particular application is anyone going to use this is it going to be valuable enough to continue investing in let alone needing to immediately start introducing microservices exactly understanding that context and i think what's tricky is that the more experience you get in a particular context the more you forget that the rest of the world might work differently. Like I worked on a project and there were some Google engineers on the project and it was very small, like running on Heroku, no like DevOps tools, nothing. And they struggled because they didn't have the world of stuff that you have at Google. They had to come outside of the bubble that they had lived in. And we all, right, we all have that. And it's just, it can be really hard. Like, 
I mean, you know, you, you look at like any programming language survey and Java is like the number one by far. And that's like a world that like I haven't been in in years and I don't have any concept of what it's like. And so I can imagine giving a conference talk at a Java conference of people thinking I'm a complete moron because I don't even know what their world is like. I only know what my world is like. And so trying to suss those out, I think is really useful to figure out like, what is the good advice? Because sometimes a person from like Google or Netflix giving their advice, like there's probably nuggets in there that are really useful and you should probably think about and understanding why and what can be helpful to get value out of it. A lot of those conferences and panels you see where people get invited, there's a draw based off of the names of the organizations that they work, you know, like, it's like, oh, this person works in Netflix. Like people are going to be like, ooh, what I know Netflix is, tell me about what things you're doing there. Maybe one day I'll get to work on fun, big things like that. Or maybe, I don't know if that's fun or not, but it's just it's interesting challenges like that. You don't always hear about like the small little three developer team company that's doing really, really well, but they've not needed to make all those big infrastructure changes to support the thing. And so like nobody's interested in like hearing about all those. Not that nobody's interested. They're just not going to get elevated and invited in the same way that you would if you're working at some big name company. As we mentioned, Google and Angular, you know, it's just that's what happens. And so Stitch Fix is a, is a recognizable name. Living Social is a recognizable, you know, so you come from that context. But I do remember going to a conference and like trying to recruit developers and they're like, what does selling women's clothes have to do with Ruby on Rails? And so like you'd have to explain, well, this is what we're working on and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, those recognizable names. I mean, yeah, they're recognizable for a reason, I guess. Oh, hey, it's me, Robbie, again. Did you hear about the new, new newsletter for the podcast? One of the challenges of running a podcast is that I'm talking with guests we're publishing them. You listen to them at your leisure in some application, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever the cool kids are using these days. And there's no back and forth conversation between you and me. So we have the newsletter. If you go to maintainable.fm, go to the top navigation. There's a link that says newsletter. You just go subscribe to that. You're going to get an email from me when there's a new episode coming out. I usually will share a little bit of more details about the episode and share some of my own thoughts on it. And you can always just hit reply and share your thoughts on the episode. Or also you'll get emails about episodes that I recorded, you know, a couple years ago from the vault. Some of my favorite episodes so you'll just get announcements of these so feel free to subscribe to the newsletter and with that let's get back to our interview with dave bryant copeland That's interesting. Do you recall any times where you've heard or you felt like something that was considered like a simplistic rule or principle that all software developers should be following did not apply to your type of situation? In any startup, you struggle with uh, Yagni, right? You aren't going to need it. And it's so simplistic. There's no nuance in that phrase. And it's very easy to say, hey, we should add more logging to this feature. Uh, that's Yagni. Is it? Like, Or if I know what the product roadmap is and I'm talking to the people running the business and they're giving me a sense of like how confident they are, then shouldn't I factor that in when deciding how to do things and like being told Yagni and just build the simplest thing that could possibly work. It's like, it needs to actually work. I don't know what to do with that. And it just makes it hard to have a real conversation because the little aphorisms are very like simplistic and they, they don't really help you make a decision. And then you kind of have to come back and be like, tell me why we shouldn't have logging or tell me why we shouldn't add this feature or tell me why we should ship this thing that doesn't totally work and have the discussion that way. And some of the agile principles don't necessarily help if you don't have the context and you don't know why they 
they are an agile principle. But then if you do, you don't need them, right? If we all know why we shouldn't build things that we don't need, we don't need to ever say Yagni or build the simplest thing. We can just talk about what we're doing. It's just, so I don't know. But this could be kind of coming back to what you're talking about, about like context. Like I could imagine if I'm a consultant coming in to a rough situation, those principles applied very vociferously would probably help make sure that like, I, as a consultant, did a good job, didn't do things I shouldn't do, was very safe, did right by the client. And interestingly, a lot of those things come from that world where I think they make a lot more sense. But how can we get away from the slogans and just talk about the real specific thing in front of us is is what I've been finding the most useful. I think you just set off like a little spark in my brain of like thinking like what types of environments were the most of them consultants that were all in the like Agile Manifesto? How many of them were in product companies? I believe many of them are now consultants. I think a lot of the stuff came from that C3 project, which is like some payroll system at Chrysler. And I think they did work there. You know how those big companies are. It's like everyone's a consultant sometimes at those places. So I think some of them did work there. But it's interesting that many of them have pivoted to being like consultants for the learnings that they extracted, which is fair enough. right? We just talked about a book I wrote about the learnings I extracted. It's fair enough. You want to share it with people and you want to help people avoid those mistakes. So yeah, I, I wonder how many of them work at product companies and don't work at consultancies these days. I guess Ken Beck worked, I know he was a consultant for a while, but I think he has worked at product companies. Does he work at Gusto maybe? I had someone on the podcast that worked with them there. So it's, it's a good, yeah, it's interesting. Again, it's just other types of context to keep in mind. Like where were the people when they came up with these ideas and what type of work were they doing? And were they part of a really large project and they can extract a lot of ideas from and like that can be useful. And so we do learn that way. I read some of the solid Uncle Bob's like notes that came up with solid and they're so old and they're all like these examples in C++ and even the examples like I had to interface with this printer to print some report and it's like those are just really ancient kinds of problems because you know it was the 80s or 90s whenever he was doing this stuff and you got to really think like, okay, how much of that is an analog to what I'm doing now? Like how much of that is the same thing? How much of that is a function of C++? How much of that is a function of the software is put on a disk and put in the mail and that's how it was installed versus timeless problems that we all have. And that if you went back into the eighties, those would be the same problem. Like picking that apart is, it can be kind of tricky, but useful, I think. You know, for those listening who might find themselves working, whether it's consultants environment or at product companies, and they're navigating, like maybe they're exploring the idea of like, hey, we've had this old JavaScript framework. We're trying to decide what to do about it, or I want to pitch using something new. And what kind of advice could you offer them on how to like think through that challenge if they haven't had that experience of ever making the decision? They don't want to, and they're worried about making a decision that might have some catastrophic problems down the road or something. So it's like hard for them to even estimate maybe how much time it might take to do because they've not done this sort of thing yet. So what could you say to those folks? We were talking way earlier about like the cost of building versus the cost of maintaining. My guess would be that your average decision maker, like the person you need to convince, hey, we need to upgrade this into React or whatever, that person is going to be sort of swayed by like a carrying cost. Like, yes, there'll be an upfront cost to like migrate this, but going forward, it will be easier to maintain, easier to add features. You do have to make a case. Like, you can't just say that. Like, you have to show that you've thought through and that like you have some sort of a 
objective way of saying, yes, I think this is an investment that I think we should make and it will be worth it. And you can't go into it. It'll be cool and we can hire developers. I think those are important, actually. Like, I think it's important to be like, hey, in a year from now, we're not going to hire backbone developers and that's going to be a problem. Like, I think that's part of it, but I think you need to make the case of like carrying costs, maintainability, security updates. If you can really dig into those and make the argument in a way that's not coming from, I just want to do cool things, that can be convincing. And the painful part about all of that is that you might come to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense to do. I've definitely done that before where I'm like, all right, we should redo this thing and whatever. Like I tried to get a previous job. I tried to get them to convert from Java to Scala because I thought Scala was going to be the best and blah, blah, blah. And I could not make a case for it. I tried really, really hard. I came at it from like, I want to write Scala because I think it's cool. And I tried objectively to do everything I was just saying. And like, I came to it. I'm like, it doesn't actually make sense for them to do this. I can't make the case for it. But it was very informative trying to sort that out and try to get away from the emotional desire and try to think like uh, someone running a team, running a system, running a company. That's some really good advice there and for folks to kind of think through. And in those types, did you ever get to go somewhere where you get to use Scala at some point? Or has that just become like a side thing that you were able to experiment with? No, I actually kind of soured on it after a while. I did try to do some personal projects with it and I did not enjoy it in the community. And I think like the job I had where I was trying to do that, that was a job I had before Living Social and Living Social was a Rails shop. And so I think doing Rails professionally met the need that I was seeing in Scala. In my mind, it was like, why am I typing all this out? Scala is more easy. I mean, Ruby and Scala are very different, but at the time, Java didn't have any of the things that Ruby and Scala had. And so Ruby kind of met that need. And thinking back now, I'm, I do don't miss running a compiler and the type errors and all that. So I'm happy with how, how things turned out, but I haven't looked into Scala in quite a while. So I have a couple of quick last questions for you, Dave. Is there a non-technical, non-software book that you find yourself recommending to your peers? Sort of in the vein of being useful at a job, there's a book called The Culture Map, which talks about cultural norms in business across the world. What is the average person in India? How do they approach a business? Person in Mexico, person in Argentina. And what's really interesting is that it doesn't come across as the USA is right. And here's these idiots from other countries. Like it doesn't come across that way at all. You read, here is how your average Mexican business does stuff. And you're like, that makes total sense, even though it's completely different from how I would think. And it really forces you out of your like bubble of what is normal. Really interesting. I don't read a lot of uh, nonfiction I'm the kind of person that just wants the cliff notes of the nut. Like if I read like one of those Malcolm Gladwell books, I just need the bullet points and I'm fine with just the bullet points. I don't need to like read the whole thing. So I stopped doing that. I read a lot of sci-fi type stuff. I read a book recently called Paranisi, which is about a guy trapped in this world of rooms. And that's the entire world is different rooms. And he he thinks that that is the whole world. And there's another person in there who is from our world. And there's this very interesting way that they interact. And it's just really kind of out there, abstracty kind of thing. I'll include links to both of those in the show notes for our listeners. I'm curious about that. But even more so that culture map, just being like, as we're moving more and more towards this remote world and like working with people different, you know, I've got people in my team in Romania and in Brazil now. And I'm like, I don't really know a lot about their work environment, like culturally. So even reading how to, there's a whole section on like explicit versus implicit ways of communication. And even on my team of all Americans, my boss communicated in a totally different way than me. And I used to get so frustrated and reading that I'm like, aha, now I understand what is happening. It's not that like my boss is being annoying or incompetent. It's just that the norms that they're using are different than mine. And now that I know that I can maybe use some techniques to try to figure out what's actually happening. So that sounds really useful. And so where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering online? 
I was on Twitter. I still check in, but now I'm on Mastodon. So there's a Mastodon instance called ruby.social. So if you're into Ruby, it's a good place to go. If you're familiar with Mastodon, you can read the posts on one server and it's very all Ruby-centric, but I'm ruby.social slash davetron5000. And I've been mostly posting there. I haven't written on my blog in a while. So plenty of hot takes there if you <laughs> if you want. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll include links for that for all of our listeners. And yeah, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Dave. Thanks for stopping by to talk shop with me. This was, yeah, this was fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking. Mm-hmm.